All right, let us have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord. We thank you for your love and grace in our lives. And uh, Lord, we pray that as we gather together tonight, Lord, uh, we pray over the kids and teens that will be down in the musical practice, Lord, be with the leaders as they're helping them. And Lord, I pray that they would continue to engage your word and and to learn what they need to learn. And uh, Lord, just continue to prep and prepare for the musical coming up in December. And just, uh, again, Lord, we pray for hearts to begin to be tilled right now, Lord, that you'd begin to work in the lives of those who'll be visiting with us on that Sunday and maybe hearing the gospel for the very first time. And so we pray that right now, months in advance, you begin to work on and, and begin to do the work internally to draw those individuals to the church that they might receive Christ. Father, we thank you for tonight, Lord, again, with uh, our devotion time here in the adult service. Lord, we pray that you just be with us as we gather around your word. Help us to engage your word, to learn much from it, to be changed by it, all for your glory. And so, Father, again, thank you for a wonderful day today that we could celebrate you. And uh, thank you again for those that came out and helped pull up the carpet, Lord. And what a blessing it is to see so many men come together and just get involved and, and help and serve where they can. And we're so thankful for it. Father, again, we thank you for all of this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. All of our children and teens that are in the musical can go ahead and be dismissed. Keep that close. Wow. That was like so fast. She took the page right off the stand. All right. We'll let everyone else get acclimated and seated where they're going. All right. All right. And now, okay, I think we've all pretty well settled. All right. So we do have a handout for you guys tonight. So if I can get a couple volunteers, that would be super helpful. So um, look at that. Man, you guys just, whoo, let's go. So I don't know how many. There's that. There's that. And our clipboards. We got clipboards here if you need clipboards and pens. If you need a pen or a clipboard or would like one of those. Yes, please make sure you return the pens. We'll get all those things handed out. We do have more clipboards if somebody needs them. Thank you, sir. Anyone not get a handout? Good. Okay. I tried to make plenty this time around, so I think we'll be good. All right. Did you grab one for yourself? Oh, no, that's there. Okay. Anyone else need a clipboard? Handout? All right. All right. Well, thank you guys for helping. Always makes it go a lot faster. Um, so uh, if I'm sniffing a lot up here, uh, we pulled the carpet out before. And believe it or not, there was just a little bit of dust involved in that process. Um, 
No, it, uh, it was amazing again to see so many come out and jump in and help. Um, it took a little bit longer, but we ran into some areas that were glued down uh, a little bit newer. What do you need, brother? Yeah, that's fine. All three of them. Oh, okay. All right. There you go. All right. So some of the areas uh, were original in 2003. They were glued down then. Uh, some other areas were glued down around 2014. So those were a little tougher to get up. So, but uh, we were able to get it up. And uh, the plan is prayerfully, as long as everything goes according to plan, uh, by Friday, um, what you see pulled up may be done in the lobby. That's not 100%, but definitely one side of the lobby, the hallway and the gym should be done. So hugely uh, hoping that goes well and we'll be good to go for the weekend. But so thankful again for all those that came out and helped this afternoon. Uh, We are going to be in Acts chapter 12. That's the handout that I gave you. So we're looking at verses 1 through 12. So just a reminder, there there are verses on the back. So I got a little bit of trouble one time. I didn't mention that and somebody thought they were done and they really weren't. So there are verses on the back. What? Uh, 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12 are on the back of the handout. Yeah, you're using a digital one, so I'm not sure how it looks on yours. But um, with that, if you would prefer a digital copy of this, maybe if you use an iPad or something like that, um, and you'd like that, I can definitely send it to you during the week ahead of time. Uh, just let me know, and we'll try to make sure we get that to you. Um, so this is a, a familiar passage to many of us, uh, dealing with this idea of Peter being imprisoned uh, for his uh, preaching of the gospel. It also involves the, the martyr of James, the martyrdom of James. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through this passage, um, pray that it's encouragement to you. Uh, again, this, uh, the book of Acts was written by Who? Who wrote the book of Acts? What? Not Paul. Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. It was kind of like, I heard a bunch of like, it was like Paul, Luke, one word. I don't know. I couldn't make it out at first. but So Luke wrote the book of Acts. And so we know he wrote the gospel of Luke. Acts, we did a kind of a little bit of a study through this when we went into Acts here a while ago. Uh, Acts is actually called the fifth gospel. A lot of people call it the fifth gospel gospel because it's the continuation of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Not him physically on planet earth, but him working through his apostles through the church. And so lots of things in this book. Um, Again, just I have to mention this because I I feel a lot of believers when they're studying through Acts, they get a little bit turned around sometimes. There are certain things in Acts that we only see recorded in Acts. It's what's considered a transitional book from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So there's some things in here that we read about that only happen once. And I mentioned this morning, they only need to happen once because it was only needed to be established once. There's other things we read about in the book of Acts that happen throughout church history. So just a little bit of a heads up on that. Here we see something that unfortunately is very common to church history. And that is the idea of persecution of the saints. And so we're going to kind of dive into what we're looking at here. Also, Acts gives a lot of historical background on different events and activities of the church and individuals in the church. So this passage takes place. The church is exploding. There's massive growth. The gospel is spreading through the known world. And so God is doing amazing things. But with that are coming large numbers of people to Christ. And along with that, comes continued persecution because these Christians are getting saved or these people are getting saved becoming Christians and they're changing their cultures. They're changing their communities and the world is changing. And so some people aren't happy about that. 
And so what we see here in this passage is this idea of that persecution coming to be front and center for uh, Peter and James. So what we're going to do, as we've done for many, many weeks, is we're going to give you about 10 minutes, um, maybe a little more. I'll give you more, maybe 12 minutes. And I'll give you about 12 minutes to read through the passage, note different observations you can make, individuals, locations, places, names, situations, things that are going on. Um, If you want to try to break the text up as you see it kind of unfold, you can do that. And so just make observations, make tons of observations about what's going on in the text, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. And again, I'll give you about 12 minutes or so to do that. So take some time, work through the text, read it through, and make some notes, as many notes as you like. So go ahead and do that, and then we'll come back in just a moment.
and uh, dive into the text this evening. And so hopefully uh, made some notes or whatnot, but there's, uh, we're just going to walk through it and give you guys uh, as much background as we can. So to start off with, I'd love to, uh, if somebody would be willing to read those first four verses, verses one through four, uh, we're going to kind of break the text up one through four, verse five, six through 11, verse 12. So that's kind of how we're going to break the text up one through four, Five stand, is going to kind of stand alone a little bit for our purpose. Six through 11, and then we'll wrap up with verse 12. All right, so verses one through four, if I can get a volunteer that would like to read that for us. Okay, yes, go ahead, ma'am. All right. Thank you, ma'am. So I was trying to think about how to title this passage. Like what would we kind of call this passage if we had to give a title to it? And the only thing that came to mind was the presence of God in our suffering. The presence of God in our suffering. And we see two different kinds of suffering here. We see one who's killed and one who is in prison and planning to be killed. And so in verses 1 through 4, we see the persecution of the church. Now it's important to note the persecution of the church has always been. Uh, we in America, we don't experience that to the same degree. Uh, we understand persecution. We all, as believers, are persecuted by the world. Uh, the way we think doesn't fit in. The way we respond to things don't fit in with the world system. Uh, the way we live our lives don't fit in. Maybe at your workplace, maybe in some area of influence, you've felt some level of persecution. Um, I remember when I was in high school and I first got saved going into my junior year. Uh, my junior year, I didn't really live for the Lord a whole lot. My senior year, I was convicted by a friend. Uh, a Christian friend in a very good way. Another man or another guy in our senior class convicted me of kind of living for Christ. And so I started trying to live more adamantly for Christ. And, you know, I found some friends didn't want to hang around me anymore, uh, made some new friends. And then also uh, I remember witnessing to a young man at the lunch table and some other kids got involved in the conversation and it just turned into kind of making fun of me and making fun of Jesus and church. So I understand that we have things like that that happen. We get called names. We might get kind of somewhat persecuted, but we don't really understand as Americans specifically this level of persecution. And this level of persecution has always been it will always be. Now, it may change in our country as persecution changes, as our political climate changes, the world changes. We don't know. But regardless, we should never be surprised by persecution. We should never be shocked when something comes against us in this world, an enemy of the cross comes against us. What, is, what does Peter say? Don't be surprised by these fiery trials that come against you. And don't be shocked. Like, where did this come from? Peter's encouragement is it's doing something. It's, it's working something for God's glory. And actually, it's refining us, right? It's, it's purifying us before Christ. So this persecution starts very early in the church. But it's always been, and I believe it will always be until the Lord returns. And so here we see in verses 1 through 4, the passage opens up with a reference to Herod the king. Now, Herod the king, that's familiar to us, that term Herod. We've heard that many times in the New Testament. And this Herod the king decides to give great persecution to the church. 
Now, we think of Herod the king, we think of the different examples in the New Testament from the trials of Jesus to the birth of Christ and all of those stories that go into that. This Herod, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on who these different individuals are so we can kind of know who we're talking about, all right? And you can make notes on the back or on the side, the top, wherever you want to write this in. This Herod, in verse 1, where it says Herod the king, this is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I. And this individual is the Roman-appointed king of Judah from A.D. 41 to A.D. 44. He is actually the grandson of who's called Herod the Great. Now, in the New Testament, there were a few references to Herods, and so I want to give you a little background on that. Herod the Great was ruling when Jesus was born. He was the one that made the determination to have all the children two years old and younger uh, killed. And that was his decision. Herod the Great was actually was kind of a, a mocking term. He was actually quite insane. He was very paranoid, very concerned about losing his power. Uh, there's stories that he murdered people in his own family to keep the power that he had. He was uh, so fearful of somebody rising up against him, he would build fortresses and things like this and never actually go there, but just have it as a backup, have it as a, a safety net. So he was quite paranoid. And so you can understand then when there's rumor of one who was born king of the Jews... This Herod the Great becomes very concerned. He's the Herod the Great is the one that talks to the three wise men, or to the wise men. We don't know that there was three, but we always think there was three. Uh, to the wise men, he's the one that says, when you find him, come tell me so I can worship him too. He wanted to slaughter the baby Jesus because he was worried about somebody coming against his rule and reign. He was very consumed with that. And his family also had many, many issues. Herod Antipas was ruling during the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus. Herod Antipas is the Herod that executed John the Baptist and ruled primarily in Galilee. So you have Herod the Great, then you have Herod Antipas, and now you have Herod Agrippa. Now, Herod Agrippa commissioned the martyrdom of James. This would be the son of Zebedee, brother of John, and he is the first apostle martyred. So if you guys study the New Testament, you know James and John, the sons of Zebedee, some of the earliest disciples of Jesus. Uh, Peter and Andrew were the first two, and John and James were there as well. And so we kind of see them coming together very early on. What do we know about James from the New Testament? We don't know a whole lot about James, the son of Zebedee. Now remember, this is not James that wrote the book of James, because that's the half-brother of Jesus. And this isn't James the less, and I know I love when scripture gives us so many of the same name. This is James, the son of Zebedee, James and John. They're also called the sons of thunder. Why were they called the sons of thunder by Christ? Yeah, Zach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you read the story, Jesus was traveling through Samaria and they wanted a place to stay for the night. And the people in Samaria said, no, we don't even want you here. You need to leave. We're not giving you a place to stay. And James and John were so upset that Jesus was treated this way. They looked at Jesus and said, hey, is it okay if we just call down fire and consume the whole village? They were rude to you. Let's just slaughter them. That was what their suggestion was. Now, there's historical reason for this. Some of you may know back in, in Kings, 1 Kings, we read about Elijah called down fire and consumed individuals in the area of Samaria. And they said basically, hey, can we do it like he did? I mean, he did it and you were fine with that. <laughs> Let's do it now. And Jesus says something so powerful. More or less, he says, 
Elijah's mission was Elijah's mission. My mission is different than Elijah's. I'm not coming to condemn. What did Jesus come to do? To seek and to save that which was lost. And so he rebukes them for this desire to consume a whole village because they wouldn't give Jesus a place to stay for the night. And so we, we know that about James and John, the sons of thunder. So what does that tell us about James and John? Now, we don't think of John this way because we think of him more effeminate because he wrote the Gospel of John, which is a lot of love of Christ, love of Christ. And so we think he was very effeminate and nothing could be further from the truth. But what does this tell us about James and John? If they were so wanting to call down fire to defend Jesus, what does that tell us about them? Sandra. Very passionate, right? Very passionate. What else does it tell us about them? We get a little bit of this from John's writings in the Gospels, even in his epistles. They were passionate. Okay, they were very close to Jesus, right? John was part of that inner three, so was James, okay? What else does this tell us about them, about James? Okay. Yeah, they believed very much in who he was and what he could do, his authority, right? His divinity, his power. And so early on in the church, I don't think it's a coincidence that that's the individual that Herod went after. So Herod chose to see James be martyred first. He's the first one to be martyred. Now, let's also look at this from a different point of view. Why would Herod... Go after James. Well, the verse tells us. It says in verse 3. And because he saw it pleased the Jews. Hopefully you circled that, underlined that, made a note of that. What pleased the Jews? The killing of James pleased the Jews. So again, what does that tell us about James's influence in the early church? His passion, his, his zealous way of probably preaching and communicating these things. And so Herod could care less about the Christian religion. He doesn't care about the Jews. He cares about one thing, staying in power. So like today, right? Think political today. This is not new, by the way. This has always been. Herod makes this decision to kill James. How do the Jews respond? Hey, we like that. So what does Herod decide is a great idea? Well, it worked with James. Let me go get Peter and I'll kill him. And that'll only make it even better. His whole decision is based on politics. It's a political move to keep the Jews happy. And the happier the Jews are, the better it is for Herod. Remember, Herod is under the authority of Rome and any rebellion looks bad against Herod. Anytime there's a rebellion or a rising up of the Jews to try to overthrow the Romans, that's bad for Herod. So anything he can do to keep them happy, he's going to do this. Now we see another example of this earlier in the New Testament. Another Roman leader that made a decision that was purely political, even though he knew it wasn't the right decision, but did it anyway, just to keep the Jews happy. Who was that? Yeah, Pontius Pilate. Remember the story of Pontius Pilate? He interviews Jesus. He goes out to the people. What does he say? I find no fault in him. There's nothing wrong with this guy. They say, no, crucify him, crucify him. So he goes back in. He talks to him again. He goes back out. There's nothing wrong with this guy. Has him beaten. I I beat him. Aren't you guys happy? No, crucify him. Pilate even says, you'd have me crucify the one that's your king? And then what do the Jews say? We have one king. 
That's Caesar. Then they say this, if you don't crucify him, we're going to tell Caesar you're allowing another king to rule and reign. Notice that's when Pilate washes his hands of the whole thing and allows him to be crucified. He even tries to present a murderer and Jesus. You can choose one. Now, this is a no-brainer. They're going to choose Jesus. They're not going to choose a murderer to let go free. Yeah, we'll take Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And so Pilate tried, in in a sense, to try to get out of this. Why? If you go back even farther between the Testaments, Old and New Testament, when the Roman Empire came in and conquered Israel, there was many wars, many battles, many wars that went on between the Romans and the Jews. And the Jews actually held pretty good ground for a while. The Romans ended up conquering, and they come in. One of the first things they did was they marched into the temple. And if you've seen any depiction of this, they would have those banners with the head of Caesar on it. And they got on the four corners of the temple, and they planted these flags with Caesar's head on it. What does that look like to a Jewish person? That's idolatry. You can't, no, we're not, because they worshiped the emperor. Some historical point, the way they found a, a, a kind of a relief to this, because the Jews revolted. The way they found a relief to this is the Jews, anywhere in the Roman Empire, were exempted from uh, emperor worship. No Jewish person had to worship the emperor like other citizens in Rome had to do. And this is actually why when the Christians started to be realized as different than the Jews, they now were being persecuted because they weren't worshiping the emperor. They were no longer kind of under the Jewish religion. And so this would cause lots of revolts and tensions. And so Pilate is at a point where if there's one more thing, he can most likely lose his position of authority and be killed. So he decides, purely political, to wash his hands of it and say, you guys do what you want with Jesus. And then we fast forward and here's Herod doing the same thing. Arrested Peter for no reason other than it'll make him look good. And it'll help him stay in power. So again, we see this taking place all throughout church history, but specifically here. Also notice, who was killed first, James or Peter? James. But who's kind of the main character in the book of Acts up until really the Apostle Paul comes on the scene in Acts 11 and 12? Who's the main character we read about so much? Peter. So if you were Herod Agrippa and you wanted to put an end to this Christianity thing or you really wanted to make the Jews happy, who would you go after first? You think Peter. But for whatever reason, he goes after James first. Now, two things come to mind. One, and I don't know what you think about this. One, James was such a nuisance that getting him out of the way was better. They would let Peter do his thing, but James, that guy was a problem. Or two, for whatever reason, Herod couldn't get to Peter. I don't think that's the case because he obviously gets to him here. And Peter was already had issues earlier. So I find it interesting that it's not Peter who's arrested and killed first. It's James, which again just shows me how much God can use someone when we just surrender. Remember Peter, the loud mouth, the one that always had something to say? But James is the one that was the greater threat to the Roman leadership and to the Jews. So Peter is arrested and he's held in prison until after Passover. Again, Herod is thinking of the Jews and what would please them. He could have killed them instantly, but it's during Passover week. So he can't do that. He has to wait till after. So he's trying to make sure, again, he keeps everyone happy. Now, in verse 4, it talks about some guards that were placed around Peter. Now, I had to get Pastor Greg to help me with the pronunciation of that Q word. 
because I read it to myself five or six times. I was like, I don't think I'm saying that right. So you can just write above that or anywhere near there the word squads. Squad is how that word. If you have a modern translation, it would just say four squads. Okay. So what this is, this is a specific group of Roman guards. These squads are soldiers, usually a Roman night watch. So one of these squads is made up of four soldiers, and there's four of them, so there's 16 total soldiers. Okay, so these guys are a Roman night watch, specifically to be given towards high-priority high prisoners. These are people we have to make sure we keep under lock and key. They cannot get away. So again, what does this tell us? Peter's somebody of great importance, a great threat to the Romans. These 16 men would take shifts, each watch through the night. So there's four watches. So each watch would be four soldiers. And they would take shifts to keep an eye on this individual prisoner. Now again, it's interesting how this plays out. Because I love how Peter responds to this. We'll get to that in just a second. So anything else interesting that you notice in verse 4? Anything else that seems a little interesting to be in verse 4? There's a word that's used there that, that kind of struck me a little bit. That I always, I always wondered why it was there. Yeah. Yeah, the word Easter. Okay. So you can underline that and, and circle that and make note of that word. Now, we know what Easter is, right? What's Easter? What? Okay, Resurrection Sunday. It's a day that we recognize as the church the day that Jesus rose from the dead. However, many would argue that it really wasn't called Easter until a certain point in church history. And so how in the world is it in the book of Acts referenced in Acts 12 so early on? So when I was looking into this, I really kind of started diving into it. Now, there's something you need to know right away. Usually, when you have a question about something like this, every other commentary has a question about this. And a few commentaries that I looked into didn't even recognize that the word was there. I mean, literally just skipped right over the whole word being there or why it was there. But diving into this, basically what I came to was there's a Greek word that's being represented here. Okay, and I'll spell it for you. The word is P-A-S. C-H-A. So this word is the word used here for Easter. It deals with the feast of Passover and or the week of Passover. So it could be talking about just the actual Passover meal, or in some cases it's referring to the whole week of the Passover celebration, the feast of unleavened bread and the Passover itself. It has been used 29 times in the King James uh, version of the Bible. 29 times this word was used. And only here is it translated Easter. The other 28 times it's translated as Passover. So my confusion came to why. Why did this word get translated this way? Some say because the word Pascha is the same in the Greek speaking to the resurrection of Christ. So when they talk about the resurrection, they also use a similar, this similar Greek word. Since Easter, or the resurrection, came after Passover, the word was used in this way in this text. More or less, it was a choice of the translators. So when the King James translators were translating the scripture, 28 times they took that word and translated it Passover. Once they translated it Easter, and they did that here. Again, symbolizing coming after Passover. So the best I can figure, there's no 
other reason that I could come up with why the translators did that other than a translational choice. Abby. I believe so. Yep. Yep. Because it's referring to the idea of Passover and we know what is the gospel for us. It's the fulfillment of the Passover, right? That we just did the Lord's Supper today. And what did Jesus use to symbolize the body being broken, the blood being spilled out, the Passover meal? So his gospel is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the sacrificial lamb. His blood was shed so that we would have the covering so that we would have eternal life and not face eternal separation and death. So again, we see that reasoning, but again, it's interesting how translators will sometimes use different words in different ways. Now, we also see here again the martyrdom of James. And I want to make one more point about this, um, because this isn't the first martyr that we read about in Scripture. Who is the first martyr we read about in Scripture? Stephen. Because technically John the Baptist would have been during the life of Christ. I'm thinking of Christians after the resurrection. So John the Baptist was a follower of Christ, but not in the fulfillment of the new covenant. Like, so when I think martyrdom, I think Christians after the resurrection. But yes, John the Baptist lost his life because he preached truth, right? He called out Herod's sin, and he, paid his, he gave his life for it. The first Christian martyr that we read about after the resurrection in the church age is Stephen. And what's interesting is that same... Persecution, as I alluded to before, continues through to today. Now, I want you to kind of just make a mental note of this. On November 5th, during our morning service, uh, we're going to be taking time, as we did last year, to recognize the Voice of the Martyrs International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And so we're going to spend some time that morning talking about the Persecuted Church, praying for specific things that we're going to have that we can talk about, lifting up the persecuted church. Um, and again, Voice of the Martyrs does an amazing job of communicating those types of things going on in our world today. All right, so moving on, verse five. So verse five says here, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. So Peter was kept in prison. Now we notice in verse four, it talks about he put him in prison. And so we're going to note this, something interesting about this, but I want to focus on that second part of the verse for now. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Now it's interesting up to this point, we've kind of been seeing a little bit of the back and forth between Herod and what he's doing and Peter's in prison. And then the passage kind of zooms out a little bit. We're no longer focused in on Herod and Peter in prison. Now we've transitioned to what? What the church is doing in response to this. So the church is responding to James being martyred and Peter being arrested. And what is the church doing? How is the church responding to this imprisonment of Peter? They're praying without ceasing. Notice they're not outside the prison picketing the prison. They're not outside the palace picketing the palace or Herod. They're not trying to break Peter out of prison. They're not being violent and chasing after Herod and trying to persuade him through violence to let Peter go. They're doing the one thing that is the most powerful thing they can do. They're praying. Because they're asking God to work on Peter's behalf. And I love that. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him, for Peter. Now we need to note this phrase, without ceasing. 
Now, this term ceasing can also be translated to stretching or praying fervently. So, so think of it this way. When Luke says they prayed without ceasing, the prayers, I kind of think of it this way. They were, they were stretching the believers to trust. Maybe that's how it could be used. They were stretching them in their faith to believe that God was going to work. They were fervent. And what do we think when we think of fervency? When someone's being fervent, what do we think of? What comes to your mind when you think of something, someone being fervent? What's that? Intense. What else comes to mind? Passionate. What'd you say? Somebody up here? Unrelenting. I love that. Maybe there's tears involved. I, I think the greatest picture, when I think of fervent prayer, and I'm, I'm not saying that we can pray to this degree, because obviously we don't understand all that went into this prayer, but the prayer of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, when he's praying and he's literally sweating drops of blood, like, like that's the greatest definition of fervent prayer. Just intense now, again, I'm not saying that we can pray to that degree because I don't know that any of us can ever understand what Jesus was going through in that moment, obviously. As the son of God, God himself, preparing to take on the sins of the world. Like, that's just intense. But that's the idea that comes to my mind. Just this fervent, intense, unrelenting, passionate praying. Now, some people tend to think this means that they literally prayed 24-7 until he was released. It could mean that they literally just stayed together praying for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. In this context, in this passage, I tend to think of that. I tend to think that they gathered together and continued to pray together until Peter shows up at the door. Spoiler alert, he gets rescued. Okay? If, he didn't, if he didn't catch that, he gets let go. Okay? And as they're praying and praying and praying, they're just fervently praying. And, and I love this about what the church can be for someone who's being persecuted or going through something. Now, what's a passage that comes to our mind when we read that phrase, without ceasing? It's another New Testament passage that should come to mind. Oh, okay. I was actually thinking of a different passage that was referenced, but James chapter 5, right? The, uh, the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Or Yes, James chapter 5, talking about Elijah. Um, is that 17, 517? Um, but yes, the idea that, that when we pray fervently, there's an effect. There's a great power in that, okay? There's another passage that came to my mind, actually, when I was writing this down. What? No, you, you're, you're there. I think you're right. Yes, First Thessalonians 517, right? What does it tell us to do? Paul says, pray without ceasing. So what was a habit of the early church, seemingly? They prayed without ceasing. That can mean continual, a time of prayer that just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. Which I know for some of us, that would be so intimidating. Like your own personal prayer life, maybe you've tried to set a goal, I'm going to pray for X amount of time. And you get so many minutes in and you run out of things to ask or talk about. Your, your mind starts racing with different things. You start thinking about the grocery list and you're like, stop doing that. Why am I thinking about that? I'm focused on prayer, right? You start to get sleepy because maybe it's the end of a long day and you're, you're so diligently trying to pray, but, but man, it's been a long day and you're tired, okay? 
So for some of us, the idea of praying like that can seem intimidating. Some of us sitting in a group like this and praying fervently for hours and hours and hours, man, that would intimidate us. But when I think of the early church, when I read, when we read of the early church, nobody had to persuade them to do this. Notice you don't read in Acts 12 and apostle so-and-so told the church they need to pray until Peter was released. It seems to me by reading the text, the church just prayed. The church realized, what can we do? Let's pray. And the reason I point out 1 Thessalonians 5.17 is because it wasn't just because Peter was in prison. It seems to be a habit of the early church in the moments of great praise and in the moments of great persecution. What else jumps out to us about this? Well, it says, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Now, we can jump ahead a little bit in verse 12. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time. We're going to spend more time breaking apart that verse because there's so much in there. But the very end of verse 12 says what? Where many were gathered together praying. So the church is praying fervently without ceasing. But they're doing this together. That means they gathered in a location. This doesn't mean that we can't pray apart from each other because we should. Right? We send out prayer chains and wherever you are, you can stop and for a couple of minutes say, Lord, I want to pray and lift up this prayer concern that for so-and-so in our church. But what was the church doing? They didn't just say, hey, you pray at your house and I'll pray at my house. They gathered as the body and said, this is so important that we need to pray without ceasing. The church gathered for prayer in a physical location. Yes, we can pray separately from the church, but notice that already there is a habit of the church physically coming together to pray. So what does that encourage us in, in our church age today? It's important we pray together. It's important we spend time together as a church, not just individually, but corporately. And this is why we structure our Wednesday night the way we do. This is why with intention, sometimes the preacher goes a little long so we don't give as much time to prayer as we want. But I got to tell that guy to slow down. He gets going too much. But, but why do we spend time every Wednesday night prayerfully around 7.50 to say, okay, we're going to break from this time. 7.55, we're going to break from this time. We're going to separate. We're going to pray together. Sometimes as one big group, sometimes the ladies stay in here and the men go down the hallway and we pray separately for things. Why do we do that? Because it's a habit of the early church and it's a habit that should be a part of our church. Because prayer is the engine that drives the church. Prayer is the way that we access the very power of God in our lives. And we don't just pray for ourselves, but we can do that, by the way. You can pray for yourself. So many people think, well, I can't pray for myself. That's arrogant. That's prideful. No, not at all. I mean, Paul actually says, hey, would you pray for me about this? So when you think about that, we can pray for ourselves, but the greatest gift is to pray for somebody else. Man, to lift up somebody that's going through something. What a blessing that is. And so we do that. We spend specific time on Wednesday night. Other services we pray together as well. We did already tonight. We do on Sunday morning. We will here at the end of our service. But on Wednesday night, to gather together and say, we're just going to spend time in prayer. And it's funny, you know, I know it can be awkward for people when you're sitting there trying to focus on prayer and it's so quiet. 
and you're scared to say the wrong thing, so you're not sure how to pray out loud. And if I do say something out loud and it sounds weird, that's going to be embarrassing. And people are intimidated by that. But the reality is that I don't read that in Acts 12. I just read that they just prayed. They just lifted up and cried out to God and said, God, we need you to work in this situation. But I go back to a few years back, an older saint who had been saved, oh goodness, 65 years at this point, 70 years saved, talking about Wednesday night prayer meeting. We were just talking and this person loved the Lord, knew the Lord, served the Lord for many years. And we were talking about Wednesday night. And at that time, we tried to actually something pretty crazy. We tried to not really do a devotion on Wednesday night. We said, how about this? We'll do like a 10-minute devotion, five-minute devotion. And then the whole rest of the night, we're just going to pray. Let's try that. And you know what's funny is we had a small group at the time, and the group got much smaller because we decided to do that, and we started having people stop coming. And one of these people that was coming, stopped coming, said this. I just need more than prayer. I just need more than that. Now, I understand we should give time to the word of God. We should be teaching the word of God and sharing the word of God and expounding the word of God because it is our foundation for all that we believe. But I find it amazing that so many believers, and myself too at times in my own Christian life, so many believers want to study the Bible but really don't want to apply the Bible. And we read a passage like this, and we circle without ceasing, and we go, man, that's awesome. Could you imagine being in that prayer meeting, by the way? Man, just the the energy, the emotion, the realness, just like just crying out together for God to work. And we go, man, that's awesome. All right, let's go home. And we suggest, hey, let's have a time of prayer, like the early church did. I'm really busy. That's just kind of awkward for me. I don't really know if it's enough. I need more Bible study. And I I remember praying one time and just thinking, Lord, why is that the case in so many believers' lives, myself included at times? And I think it's because when we study the Bible, although it can be difficult, it takes work. Don't get me wrong. I love studying Scripture. I love, like I said, reading different things and doing it. It's just exciting to me. And it is for you too, I'm sure, at times. But we love that, and it takes some work. But I think the reason churches and believers struggle with prayer is because prayer is actually harder than Bible study. And here's why. Because Bible study, I just read it. I read another book. Oh, that's interesting. I make some notes. Lord, thank you for showing that to me. I pray I'd apply that today in my life when we go about our day. Prayer is nothing but application. Prayer is just you and God laying it out, being real, crying out. And I think, honestly, prayer takes more work than Bible study. Not to degrade Bible study. I hope you're getting what I'm saying here. I'm not trying to demean studying God's word. But for somebody later on in their life, after so many years, decades of being a Christian, to say, yeah, I need more Bible study, and I don't really, prayer's not enough. That, that, that shocked me. And so what we did was we decided, okay, Lord, our church is just at a, a, a time when We need to have some kind of devotion. That's fine. If that's what you're leading for our church to want to do, we're going to do what the church needs and wants. And so we kind of met in the middle. We're not going to go an hour of prayer. 
we'll do, try to shoot for maybe a half hour of prayer, 25 minutes of prayer. And we'll do some Bible study and some prayer and just see where you lead. And the Lord is blessed. And I absolutely love our Wednesday night studies. I really genuinely do. Going through Revelation (laughs) took us, what? We're on chapter, the end of chapter three. We've been doing this since like June. So it's been a little bit of a time-consuming study. I love it. But I think I love Wednesday nights more because of the prayer than the study. And so when I was reading this out and I was walking through this passage, I could not get away from verse 5. Because I think that if we really want to see God use this church, not so much the building, although that's part of it, but the church, the body, you and I together, if we really want to see God shake our culture, our community, our world for Christ, starting right here in Emily City, Goodland Township, it's not going to come, and please understand when I say this, from more Bible study. I think it's going to come from seeking him in prayer, calling out to him, relying on him, asking him for the wisdom we need to understand God's word when we do study the Bible, and then allowing him to use us for his glory. I've always been amazed by the process that Jesus applied at the end of Matthew 9. Matthew 9, he says, look out into the harvest, right? It's white. It's ready to be harvested. There's so many that are ready to receive Christ. But he says this, pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his harvest. Did the disciples need to learn some things? Yeah, they learned directly from the word of God. They didn't need it written down. He was before them. And he taught them. And he taught them doctrine. And he taught them theology. And that's all needed. But he says, you want to reach the community? Pray. Pray that God will send forth laborers into his harvest. So I believe they did. And then what does Jesus do in Matthew 10? He sends them out to be the laborers in the harvest. We need to study God's word. We need to be passionate about it. So many churches today are ignoring God's word. It's motivational talks. It's feel-good stuff. It's just nonsense in a lot of places. To the point where people come here and go, man, you read more than one verse. That's awesome. I had somebody tell me that one time. They said, I just want to go somewhere where they read more than a verse a Sunday. Can I get a little more out of that? And we're not perfect. We've got a lot of problems, a lot of issues. And I'm not a perfect pastor. Far from it. Just ask Sandra. She can fill you in. But when you think about this, we need to know God's word. But man, not at the expense of prayer. And I don't know why it seems like it's, I meet people and they're all about prayer, but not about the Bible study. Or they're all about Bible study, but no real active prayer life. And so I I just really believe that if we are going to be a church that reaches this community for Christ, by his grace, and only by him working through us, we have to be a church of prayer. Isn't it amazing when Jesus went into the temple and he flipped the tables over and he drove out the merchants, which, by the way, totally shakes those that think Jesus is only love. No, Jesus would never do that. He loves, he loves, he loves. He made a whip and he beat people out of the temple. By the way, he did that in love because he could have just consumed them with his word. If Jesus can say, I am, and soldiers fall to the ground at his very breath of saying, I am, then beating people and driving out of the temple was actually gracious. He could have said, you no longer can breathe. You're done. So he drives them out of the temple. Why did he do that? Because they were selling things. They were robbing the people misusing these things. And he says something so powerful. You've made my father's house a den of thieves. What was it supposed to be? A house of prayer. 
Not a house of preaching, although that's fine. Not even a house of music, although we see music all throughout the Old Testament. Beautiful examples of God moving through the music and the worship. Psalms is beautiful music. But he says, man, my house was a house of prayer, and not just for you, for all nations. And so to, to me, again, that verse 5, it just, it just really grabbed me this week to realize, are we honestly a church focused on and driven in prayer? Not just individually, but continue to be so corporately. So here's what I want to do. They end at 7.15. We got 10 minutes. I would love to take just a few moments and just end some time in prayer. So I hope that's okay with you. No one's got to pray out loud. We're not going to make anyone do anything like that, obviously. But I would like to just spend a few moments in prayer. And I would like to open it up, kind of like we do on Wednesday nights. And actually, we just did this yesterday with our men's prayer breakfast. And we just said, hey, anyone who wants to pray can pray. You know what was so cool? I love our men's prayer breakfast. And I love that kids and teens are involved. One of our, uh, I, think, I think he's a sixth grader this year. I think so. And so we opened it up. And as everybody was, a couple guys were, one man prayed, and then this sixth grade kid just started praying. Specific prayer things for people that were sharing. And I was sitting like, Lord, that is amazing that you're using the, the courage of a sixth grader to encourage one of these men in this group to go, wow, if he can do it, well, then I can do it. Now, do we have to pray out loud so that it'll count? Of course not. That's not what I'm saying. But if you're letting fear make the decision for you, that's the problem. And so I want to do this, and anyone can, but I want to open it up for just a few moments. I'm going to ask everyone to bow your heads right where you are. We're just going to pray. And if you feel led to pray, you'll be able to do so. If not, that's totally fine. I'll close this in just a few moments. And, and honestly, we can pray for whatever we would like to pray for. It's on our hearts as we want to bring it before the Lord. So let's do that. Let's bow in prayer. And then anyone that would like to pray can go ahead and pray, and then we'll close in just a few moments. Heavenly Father, as we continue in prayer, we just are so thankful for a church family to gather with, Lord, to seek your face, to come before you in times of need, but also to come before you in times of praise and rejoicing. And Lord, I I pray that we would know that this church, that our church family Um, is there for us to lift us up that when things are happening in our world things are happening in our communities and persecution against the church the greatest thing we can do is pray but Lord I, I know in my life sometimes I neglect prayer I try other things to try to resolve the issue or the problem and I find discouragement and disappointment but yet, Lord, when we lift it up to you and we seek your face, that we know we are asking you, the one that can affect change, to do something. And Father, sometimes deliverance doesn't come the way we want. Lord, we know that you delivered Peter from that prison cell, but you didn't deliver James. Not in the sense of what we would ask. But yet we know that when James breathed his last breath here, his very next breath was in the presence of the Lord. And I believe that he entered into the joy of the Lord with great fanfare, not because of who he is, but because of what you've done and continue to do through those that would call upon your name. And so, Lord, I pray that we would pray effectively. Your will be done.
Sometimes that means there's healing this side of heaven. Sometimes that means that person is taken home and healed forever on your side of heaven. Well, we are not infinite. We are not all-knowing. You are. And so sometimes you're going to do things, Lord, actually all the time or most of the time. You're going to do things we just don't understand. But I pray we trust. I pray we learn from this passage this evening that as the church, a habit, a discipline that we must continue to strive to hold on to is the habit of praying without ceasing. To pray fervently as a church for so many things. And Lord, I believe that if we're a praying church, it's a powerful church. Because we're seeking the one who can do anything. We are not able to do anything. We are limited. But you can do the impossible. So I pray that we would have a discipline of daily prayer for our own lives. A discipline of daily Bible study, of course. But also, Lord, a time of gathering together consistently, not forsaking the assembling. Lord, one of the greatest ways that we can provoke one another into love and good works, as Hebrews 10.25 talks about, is through prayer. So help us to be diligent in that, to be fervent, intense, passionate, and excited to pray. It is not a chore. It is not a work we must do to check the box. We are followers of Christ, sons and daughters who have the privilege of prayer May we never see it as a chore or a burden, but a privilege that we get to talk to you, praise you, and honor you. And we thank you for all this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.